Hello and welcome back to Not Exactly Citizen Kane. The episode you're about to listen to is actually part two of a much longer conversation, so feel free to skip back and listen to episode three for the first half. Also, during this episode you might hear some technical problems with my microphone in particular, which were not detected whilst recording and have since been the bane of my life during editing. So apologies there, feel free to uh, fast forward through some of my wonderful insights if it gets too much. I wouldn't blame you. All right, enjoy. Uh, hi, uh, this is Not Exactly Citizen Kane, the film podcast in which we talk about films that were nominated for Best Picture by the Academy Awards. Uh, today we're continuing our look through uh, the 87th Academy Awards. I'm joined as ever by my illustrious co-host, a man who has told me many times that his happiest memories all involve that time he worked as a busboy in a historic European hotel. How are you, Jonah? It's Jonah Kensit. How are you, man? Hello. Yeah. Do you miss your boss, your boss with the, the great moustache? and He was the and, most heavily uh, perfumed man I've ever met. Yeah, yes, yes. That's what I heard. Um, yeah. And it's not just the two of us, though, today, is it? No, as, thankfully. As, uh, indeed, we've already talked to him about biopics, but he's back for more. Um, uh, uh, a very good friend of ours, a man who spends most of his time getting shouted at by a bald man who wants him to go faster. It's uh, Mr. Cameron Reed. Hello. Hello. Uh, not quite my tempo, but I'll let it slide. Yeah, well, sorry, you're going to throw a chair at me, aren't you? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I I would throw a chair at you anyway. <laughs> yeah, you have done many times. Actually. That's how you enter a room, isn't it? That's, that's, that's how that's how you know I'm there. I, I walk yeah. in with it's my cam little, here, yeah, with my little yeah, here. pie hat. I put it on the, a coat rail, which inexplicably is any in any location that I turn up in, whether it's indoors <laughs> or outdoors. With my jacket, with my little blazer, yeah. and then I just throw a chair. That's my greeting. <laughs> He didn't say anything. He just comes in, throws a chair. No, I just come in, throw the chair, and that's it. Oh. Anyway, so we've, uh, <laughs> as I said, we've been looking at uh, films from 2014. Um, yeah, we looked at lots of biopics in the last last part of this conversation. Um, Cameron, uh, maybe a quick recap. Uh, what 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 were your thoughts about those biopics? In brief, please. Yes. So. Uh, 2014 for film was quite an interesting year uh, and out of the eight films that, we're, that we've been looking at, four of them were biopics. So the first one was American Sniper telling the story of US Navy SEAL sniper Chris Kyle, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring um, the heartthrob that is Bradley Cooper. <laughs> oh, yes. And oh, Bradley uh, Cooper. later on from there, we looked at The Imitation Game starring uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, again, another heartthrob. Uh, as the uh, the brilliant uh, mathematician Alan Turing. And then uh, later on, we looked at uh, an incredible film called Selma, starring mm. David Oyelowo. Um, very, very compelling film about Martin Luther King and the march, and the march between uh, Montgomery and Selma. Yeah, another heartthrob, David Oyelowo. Yeah. Another, another yeah. heartthrob who, yeah. as we talked about in the last episode, didn't get nominated for Best Actor, which I, I am a, a little crime. Bit, I'm still a upset crime. about to this day. Absolutely ridiculous. And uh, The Theory of Everything, uh, directed by James Marsh, most recently did a film called The Mercy with Colin Firth, which uh, if those of you that haven't seen it, please go and watch it. It's actually quite good. It's a true story. So The Theory of Everything, uh, based on the uh, early life of um, Jane Hawking and Stephen Hawking, and uh, yeah, this was uh, 
This was an interesting one that we had quite an interesting conversation about, you know, with regards to is it okay for an able-bodied actor to play a, to play a disabled person? Uh, how Eddie Redmayne kind of prepared for the part and how he... Another heartthrob. Another, another heartthrob. Uh, basically, um, all of the biopics that we've talked about today and before have got heartthrobs in for some reason. Yeah, all starring very attractive men. All starring very attractive men who are more attractive than we are. Yeah, which is probably why they're movie stars. Uh, yeah, yeah probably. probably is, isn't it? It's yeah. probably the secret, isn't it? That's probably the secret, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, so yeah, quite a good year for biopics. And and today, I believe, we are going to be looking at the four other films, which yes. um, are a bit more subjective. So hopefully we can say yeah. a bit more about them. I yeah. described this year, I to- when we were talking about, because obviously we did biopics last time, I described this as adventurous filmmaking. I don't know what you guys... Adventure storytelling. Adventure storytelling, that's yesterday. what I said, yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know if you guys agree with that as a as a way of you know bundling them together i think that's a perfect description absolutely that's very apt that's, considering yeah. what each one brings to the table yeah yeah it's it's all about they're all films that kind of do something tell their stories in a way that other films don't so we're going to be talking about um whiplash boyhood um birdman or brackets the unexpected <laughs> virtue of ignorance end bracket <laughs> And Le Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, which which is not called Le Grand Budapest. No, it's called, it's the, called Grand the Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> not to be confused with the best exotic marigold hotel, which I keep confusing it with. Yeah. Two uh, very different films. Are <laughs> oh, you watched the completely different films of us? I did. Oh god. Wouldn't this I, be I a better Judy podcast Dench. if you were talking about <laughs> great exotic great. I thought Judy Dench was amazing in this film, yeah. guys. Okay. <laughs> she stole Dench. the show from Rafe Fines. <laughs> uh, right. Where to start with these? Um, should we start with the, the Grand Budapest Hotel? Because yeah. I think it's a great film that, should we say, isn't maybe a front runner? Is that a bit presumptuous to say? Um, I would have been disappointed if this were the one that had won, possibly. Um, that's not to say I didn't like it. I think it's great. Let's have a plot summary. Cameron, what's it about this film? So the Grand Budapest Hotel is, uh, it stars uh, Ray Fiennes in a, um, a, a, a massive cast of incredibly well-known yeah. names, including Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, F. Murray Abraham, Harvey Keitel, Jude Law, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Harvey Saoirse Ke- Ronan. Is Harvey Keitel in it? Harvey Keitel is in it. Who, who's, who's he in it? What? I, I, I will have to look it up because I, I remember he had a very, I think he had a yeah. minor... Is he one of the hotel people? He was Ludwig. He was the leader of the prison gang. Oh, yeah. Well, this no, is a wow. team. <gasps> I, <laughs> I've never noticed that I've before. Just remember, and it's, got, yeah. it's got others like um, uh, Larry Pine, who's been in stuff like House of Cards, a uh, big fan of him. Uh, Bob Balaban, who probably best known in, in the Wes Anderson sort of universe as being the narrator in another a brilliant film, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's got but, an immense cast. This film. It's got it's Tilda Swinton, Bill Murray, the old and Tilda woman. Swinton. Yes, as you've never seen her before. But yeah, it's about this hotel, and it, it's weird because the plot is kind of very simple, but also quite difficult to describe, isn't it? Yeah. Um, with with this, okay, with this episode, we're going to try and avoid spoilers until we talk about them, and when we talk about them, we will flag it up so you can skip ahead. So when we're not talking about them, I might even put some timestamps in the description to this episode if I'm feeling kind. Oh. Um, yes. So it's about this hotel and they and Rafe Fiennes is the manager of this hotel and he goes on the run because people think he he's killed Tilda Swinton. That's not a spoiler. It's quite early on. And there's this whole thing where the, a 
painting and Adrian Boy Burns quite cross and uh, Willem Dafoe is quite menacing. Jeff Goldblum's in it. Jeff Goldblum's in it. As well. Jude Law's yeah. in it. I just remembered. Jude, yeah, and Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. Um, Tom who's Wilkinson, also yes. in the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Let us not forget. So, uh, yeah, he is. Um, bit the, of a, the crossover bit of a here is, crossover. Is, is almost yeah. uncanny. Did you know, I, this is a bit of a fun fact, guys, you may not have noticed this, but both this and the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel feature hotels heavily in their narrative. Is that so? That is so, yeah. My goodness. Um, I, I mean, who's the better manager, Ray Fiennes or Dev Patel? Are we not forgetting Flash Thompson, whose who's, who's name I can't yeah. remember? Um, <laughs> he plays Zero. What's his name in this? What's his, the actor's name? Tony, Tony Revolori, who's been in like... He's been in like Jumanji and stuff. No, well, no, not Jumanji. Spider Man Homecoming. Spider Man. Spider -Man. Flash Thompson. Yeah. Apparently, when he so when when he started making this film, Wes Anderson um, compiled a list of uh, old films featuring European hotels or or um, old old films set in Europe on the brink of war. And there's lots of um, little pastiches and little moments that um harken back to these films um, that makes a lot of sense to me a lot of sense yeah that does yes okay mm. as, as a filmmaker talk us through wes anderson because he's got such a kind of unique artistic voice as a director when you're watching a film if it's directed by wes anderson you you could pick any frame and yeah. know right what what goes into what makes a film a wes anderson film apart from the fact that wes anderson directed and wrote it um, so Wes Anderson is what we might call an auteur. He's somebody who has a particular style, a particular method of of making uh, his films, and he often collaborates with a certain group of technicians and, and people. Um, so just to explain um, him being an auteur, the auteur theory started out in, in French film criticism uh, and was brought forward by people like André Bazin and developed later by you know, American critics such as Andrew Saris. Other auteurs might include Hitchcock, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, and, and other kind of directors who have a distinct visual and narrative style. So for example, normally they're people that write and direct their films. Yeah. And uh, the, the thing about Wes Anderson is that he, the thing that is most often associated with him is colour. And mm -hmm. often his use of historical kind of um, iconography. So for example, Moonrise Kingdom is set in the 1960s and conveys the 60s incredibly well. And uh, yeah, so he just has a, a reputation for being somebody who uses colour as a storytelling device. And uh, colour is often something that has quite a lot of connotations within film culture anyway. Yeah. But Wes Anderson really does take that to the next level. And particularly with the Grand Budapest Hotel, it's... Um, it's a very important storytelling device and, you know, each character kind of, you know, is, is sort of looks, looks different in the way that they're dressed, in the way that their color is. Um, all of the hotel staff wear purple, uh, all of the kind of intimidating figures within it, uh, such as Adrian Brody's character wear black and their hair's black. So that, you know, it's an important way of distinguishing the characters within a narrative and, um, yeah. Other things that Wes Anderson that does quite well is that he he's somebody that shoots on film. So all of Wes Anderson's films, as far as I know, uh, even some of his early work, including Bottle Rocket, they were shot on 35mm as well. And he collaborates with a um, cinematographer who's collaborated with the most, somebody called Robert Yeoman, uh, who won the... Uh, no, he didn't win, but he was nominated for Best Cinematography 
in 2015, but he was also uh, nominated for a BAFTA award for his work on the Grand Budapest Hotel. And, you know, he shot Moonrise Kingdom and Hmm. uh, he shot the Darjeeling Limited. And uh, he also shot the French Dispatch, which is coming uh, relatively soon. Well, but the thing is, when you're talking about modern auteurs, I think Wes Anderson is one that jumps quite to the top of the list with a lot of people because he's so... You can yeah. put your finger on what makes his style so easily, you know, so easy that you can accidentally see it in nature. When we were talking about Chaplin films in our back in episode one, back in nineteen twenty-seven, back in nineteen twenty-seven, um, kind of uh, the the thing that because um, we're talking about the circus as a as as opposed to other Chaplin films. If we're talking about this film, if this film hypothetically won, would it win because it is a Wes Anderson film? What makes this film stand out maybe from his other works to make it a possible winner? I don't know, um, but I'm just raising that as a point. Is there something about the Grand Budapest Hotel? Because I feel like it's out of his films, it's the one that most people yeah, just in the, the public are aware of. It, it feels like if you want to get your friends into watching arty, weird films... Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel is a great gateway drug. Yeah, I, th- I think it's... What does make it mainstream? That's a very good question because it kind of it isn't. It's not... It's very far back in terms yeah, of yeah. its historical setting. It's not yeah. in the right aspect ratio. Well, it changes, um, doesn't it? The well, opening it changes beautifully, flashbacks doesn't it? Well, it, has, yeah, yeah. it has three. It has three and it sort of... It, it goes through the three of them because it. what they do is they distinguish the different periods in which the film mm. takes place in. And again, that links very much with the um, with with kind of Wes Anderson's way of telling story through the visuals. Um, he's a very strong writer, and the characters are very engaging. But it's very well complemented by the. I mean, the cinematography for me, just because I'm a bit of a camera nerd, yeah. and I won't go off on one today. But, <laughs> oh no, please um, do. But but I mean, the the film was shot on an Arycam studio, which is a, a 35 millimeter camera, and it, I think it was oh, wow. shot on Kodak Vision Three film stock. So it's and, that's um, yeah, that's yeah, quite old fashioned way of doing it. You know? It is, and I think they traditionalist. It was so so normally on feature films, you would have like you would have one camera that you shoot on. Um, some feature films, like for example, I'm just thinking of a recent example, like The Joker, for example. They had three cameras, mm. three camera setups. But whilst with Wes Anderson, he normally has one, and um, yeah, the, the the way it's lit, um, there's all sorts we can say about that. Um, like all the interior shots are quite warm because they're shot, um, they're lit with um, uh, tungsten like fixtures, so like very warm yeah. light. And uh, you know you, they they use these things called I think they're called china balls. You know those like fixtures that you can put over lights that are made of paper. Oh yeah. So they'll have those on a, on a boom, and I think. Um, with all of the shots that they had of them walking through corridors, they had like a China ball above Ray Fiennes and uh, Tony Rivori as they're oh. going down. And uh, yeah, it's a very frugal but very effective way of lighting a scene because it yeah. diffuses the light, but it also kind of, it doesn't interrupt the scene. Like Wes Anderson is very good and, and Robert Yeoman as well of not overdoing it when it comes to the visuals. Everything that they're doing has a purpose, which yeah. I think kind of distinguishes Wes Anderson from other auteurs. Basically, yeah. in short, everyone. <laughs> the the attention to detail within Wes Anderson's films is is really quite extraordinary and, and everything has a purpose in a way. Yeah. I'm sure there are several hundred thousand people that will disagree with that point, but, it, yeah. you know, film is subjective and we, we all get different things from it. But yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah, but I think mm. it's funny as well. I think that's what 
makes it helps it be appealing if if you can be a clever film that you know we can appreciate all the work and the style and the innovation that's gone into it then that's that's but i think if you're gonna appeal to a mass audience you've got you know making them laugh is one of the best ways of doing that and it is a i think the reason it's such it is such a funny film is because it's constantly surprising as well the you know the 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 sudden changes in color and set the kind of the movement of the characters within it it's all it all surprises you and makes you laugh quite a lot yeah i yeah it's it's i had a weird experience watching this this time um so I had seen it before, twice. I saw it at the cinema when it came out. And I remember being actively... No, this tells you, tells you I was a bit young and I wasn't really as into films back then. But I was actively nervous about watching a film that wasn't, like, in, in inverted commas, the right aspect ratio. How weird is that? I was like, oh, <laughs> am I going to enjoy it because it's all square? And, <laughs> um, and the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Of course you will, you idiot. <laughs> but uh, so, and I watched it a couple of years ago, well, a year or so ago again. And then I watched it for this. And if you'd have asked me after watching the first few times, I would have said, yeah, this is hilarious, man. Oh, it's so good. Ray Fine steals the show. He's hilarious. It's so funny. I thought it was beautiful this time and I really appreciated it, but I didn't find it that funny this time is that because you're not not. surprised this time i think it is yeah i was Hmm. thinking about why and then you said well it surprises you so much and i think i'm not surprised but i'm looking at i'm looking for the choreography because it's so it is so choreographed choreographed yes Um, and and i think i wonder i didn't dislike it but what happened for me is I wasn't laughing as hard. I was looking at how beautifully it was constructed. But without the jokes hitting for me, I didn't enjoy the plot as much. It felt okay. a little bit flimsy. And that, when I noticed that, the whole film kind of started unraveling a little bit in my head. And I thought, okay, this is fine. And this is gorgeous. And it's beautifully shot. And it's fantastically constructed. And Ray Fiennes is amazing. In it. Oh, it's, I think it's is spectacular. His, one of his best performances. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's great. Absolutely. Um, I love Ray Fiennes, but this is so brilliant because it's him yeah. in a different light as well. Yeah. But all of this stuff, right? Great, 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 great. And yeah, I'm feeling like it's a bit paper thin. And some of the jokes... When I noticed the jokes, a lot of the time I just didn't find them funny, but that was fine because they weren't acting as jokes to me anymore because mm. I knew what was happening. But some of them that did kind of go, this is a joke in my head, I found a bit juvenile. And if I was in a less good mood than I was when I watched it, maybe even a bit annoying. Like the bit when when Zero, the bus boy, is, mm. is trying to pick the letter from him. And yeah. Ray finds, you know, I just found that annoying. <laughs> and I, like the last time I watched it, I loved it. Great. <laughs> but I don't know. I, it, I, I wonder what that says about it. But it, it kind of, I was going to watch it again after that. So I could kind of see if that was just a one-off thing. And I didn't yeah. get around to it. Um, I, I think I understand what you mean. But I, I think for, for me, like the times I've watched, the first couple of times I've watched it, I, uh, when it was n- newer, I think I was laughing more. But um, I think for me, then watching it again is where, like you said, watching the choreography is when I start to pick out some of those details that Cam was talking about. You can get lost in the visuals in a way, especially when you're Mm. watching it for the first time. And I'd say arguably you can do that with any Wes Anderson film. You look at the visuals 
and they're so distinctive that you're just quite taken away. The, the cases with any film, and this is something that kind of links with what you were experienced, Alex, because once you watch a film from a certain perspective, it begins to unravel a little bit. Once you're aware that everything is a construction and you get, you know, not as lost in the story, it, it can really change a person's perception on a film. And I felt kind of the same watching this because I look yeah. at gags like The Letter and I also look at experiences like the 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 romance between Tilda Swinton's character and Ray Fiennes' <laughs> character. And I just think, well, that's a bit weird. Like, I don't, like, that's just a bit weird. Whilst before I was like, oh, this is interesting. I Weirdly, I, I, I don't I mind like that at this. all. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I, I, I had no problem a lot. with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, well, no, it was no I, of, I'm just saying yeah. the two of those two characters for me, but I, I thought really worked together. And the whole kind of sense that he... Uh, I'm not going to say the word prey, but okay, I will. Preys on sort of the rich old, elderly uh, women. Yeah, yeah. I, I, something women. about that yeah, rang yeah, true, yeah. and also the fact to that the way he you manages, live your life <laughs> finds his character, Jonah. Um, it, it, yeah, it did sort of, uh, but it it wasn't creepy or sleazy to me. It seemed sweet, um, but maybe I need to re- reassess that. Sorry, Cam, carry on. It's all right. I just. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that there are certain elements that all of us will sort of look at on a second or third or fourth pass. And you'll just think, why is that there? Why has that been written in that way? But no, I just think it's and, and one element that I think we should we should talk about before we perhaps move on to the to the next film mm. is uh, the production design. As with every Wes Anderson film, mm. I think it's absolutely amazing. But I think it takes on a narrative of its own with this film because yeah. you've got things like Mendel's Bakery. Uh, oh, which yeah. was created completely oh. by the, the minds of Wes Anderson, but also the, the production designer Adam Stockhausen, who's uh he I mean he 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 got a second nomination for an Oscar as a result of this film and, and the first was was for his work on uh, Twelve Years a Slave. I mean I, I I managed to find some of Stockhausen's sketches from pre-production oh. on, on, on the internet. They are readily available, and he's also done a couple of interviews in the run-ups to the Oscars in 2015. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And apparently what he did is that he visited the, the Library of Congress, which is this massive archive in the United States. And he looked at basically different alpine resorts within Europe. He looked at sort of arc, arc, you know, pieces of architecture and monuments like Big Ben and, and the Eiffel Tower. And um, he, you, know, you can tell just by looking at some of the old postcards that he's been talking about of, of, of alpine resorts, just how much he drew from those. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. So Adam Stockhausen won production design for this and and rightly so, because just just everything about the film visually is so great. Even the cakes. Can we talk yeah. about the cakes for a minute? Yes. Like, oh, the cakes. the cakes are just absolutely, you know, the colour, the way they're structured. I mean, I'm not a baking connoisseur by any means, but I, I, I absolutely loved the, the, the fact that, you know, food would normally be quite a small aspect of a film like this but the fact that it's been treated with as much respect as any other character i Mm. think is a testament just to how you know how brilliant wes anderson is and how he takes film and uses it so much as a visual medium can i use Mm. the cakes just briefly one of my big criticisms with this film and I think it says a lot that we didn't even mention her when we went through the cast, but there is really not enough Sesha Ronan in this at oh, no. all to the yeah. point where it was beginning to really make me quite cross by the end. No, because yeah. there's no reason not to yeah. have her in it more. 
the film's only 90 minutes. Thank you, Wes, but also it can be a bit longer, can't you? But the fact that she's kind of sidelined in the way that she is, and she's Saoirse Ronan, who's just yeah, fantastic. One of the, one of the rising stars of our generation, I think, in terms of... One of the best actors of our and generation, certainly. Yeah, And all of the stuff about Zero being kind of cross about Ray Fiennes flirting with her just didn't sit well with me. And, okay, a little bit of a spoiler. Oh, well. Uh, um, the fact that she dies off screen, like, for no reason. Like, it wouldn't... You know, I know F. Murray Abraham needs to be lonely. He's great as well in this. He's in oh, one yeah. of my favourite films of all time, so I love him in everything, even that rubbish Star Trek film he was in. But, yeah, he's great. Um, <laughs> uh, it's weird. He gets killed by a facelift. Anyway, um spoiler for star trek insurrection as well yeah uh yeah i just it just annoyed me <laughs> I, the lack of sasha ronan i just thought was a bit inexcusable and actually all of these films all eight almost felt less um like like they handled their female characters less well than some of the films we looked at in the 1920s and that's a bit inexcusable I would say. Yes. Actually, in, um, once you've mentioned that, I'm running through them in my head and you're completely right. There's, it's With the exception of possibly one that we'll come on to soon, yes. they're all sort of put upon girlfriends and wives and, Apart well, and even from, then, you know. I, I, the, well, I assume the one you talk about, Boyhood, is the one that I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about Boyhood in a moment. Uh, yes, I just, um, that, and Saoirse yeah. Ronan made me realise that. And isn't it awful that the films in the 1920s, even though, they were women through the prism of the 1920s, so they weren't massively liberated, let's say, but they felt like they had a presence in a way that many of these women in these films didn't. And I think that's a little bit awful. Well, yeah, it's a big the, bit awful, but it's a yeah. bad sign, isn't it? Yes, I think it, it's funny you should say that because I do look back at these films and, I mean, this year I think, what, what you know, I still think it was a good year for cinema, no doubt. But certainly when it comes to female agency within the, the narratives of the films that we're talking about, um, I, I do think, especially when we were talking about the biopics, there were strong female characters within that, within them, but they were all supporting characters. Yeah. Yeah. And we are starting to see more films that are, that are female led, uh, whether it's by female technicians, female directors, female actors. But no, I, I am just, I do agree. I think it's disappointing that Saoirse Ronan wasn't in this more. And the fact that she does die off screen. I think was a little bit of an insult to her character because I did want to know more and I felt that her yeah. character had a lot more potential than than she was allowed to have. And again, you can and, talk about, you know, how it's a it's a male director, male writer writing a female character and and not giving her as much agency as, as she should perhaps have. Um and I don't really see how her death, I mean, yes, it causes Zero to be lonely in the end, but I don't see how she has to die. Like I don't see how that serves you know, if yeah, anything, it, it, I, say I don't it's see a how spoiler, it serves the story. It almost isn't, is it? Because it's not really in the main body of the film. So. No, I forgot that it happened, I think. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I could not remember what happened to her in this, to the point where, another spoiler for this film, when the woman's head in a box is found, I thought that was hers. And I was mm. very cross then. Um, but but even, you know... I. And uh, Leah Sedou is another female character in this who's given absolutely nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, and 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 she's introduced. Sasha Ronan's character is introduced. One of the first things we hear about her is Ray Fiennes meets her and then does this horrible little passage about why she shouldn't be attractive. 
and then says, and yet she is, or something. And and it's kind of like, and I get that it's about his character and it's set in the thirties and all yeah, that. Yeah, that didn't that sit left well with me. Left a really bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, I didn't see that. Now. I didn't see like, yeah, I I agree there that it could be. You could justify it and say, oh, it's just because of his character. But I would say yes, but was it absolutely necessary no, to say yeah, something right. like that? Yeah. I don't think it. I don't think it is. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, yeah, because Saoirse Ronan's gorgeous, and even if she wasn't, who fucking cares? You know, because it just seemed weird to me. And I think yeah. if that's one of your many female characters, then that's a bit different, possibly. But I don't know. I want to talk about um, Whiplash as a contender for um, the greatest movie villain of all time, possibly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, J.K. Yes, Simmons absolutely. is just unbelievable in this film. Uh, he won because, of course, he did Yeah, for Best Supporting Actor. There's no question. It's such Sorry, a Ethan visceral. Hawk. We know it's visceral taken 12 years, but yeah, yeah visceral is the word. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, I, you, you were just talking before, Alex, about you know, finding people who've met a, met a Fletcher in their lives, like musicians. But I feel we've all met a version of Fletcher, which is why it rings so true. We've all met someone who is yeah, uh, yeah. No, uh, not right, as abusive and controlling to that extent, but we've, we've met, it, it's a, it feels so realistic in the way that, you know, yeah. Thanos and Darth Vader could never make you that uncomfortable, I don't think. So, no. so Whiplash quickly is the story of uh, a drummer yeah. um, who wants to be famous and is at this uh, prestigious music school um, and he gets handpicked by J.K. Simmons to be a drummer in his special band and J.K. Simmons then just abuses him for 90 minutes and it's sort of about uh, teaching philosophy and what constitutes a good teacher and whether praise is healthy or... yeah. Abuse or what J.K. Simmons is doing is abuse, and it's about he kind of almost Miles Teller's character almost sells his soul <laughs> throughout the film, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's electric. It's it's. I mean, what what a film! I wrote down in my notes watching because it's a, it's a film about drumming, so naturally you it, it has it's a tight film. It's a very and I wrote down after watching the opening of this film. I wish like if I could live. Or hundred years and be able to write something that concise and tight as that opening, I would die mm. happy. That is, it's beautiful to watch. Remind me what the opening scene is. So Whiplash opens on a long uh, tracking shot through a very dark corridor, um, mm. showing us a practice room where we see Andrew Neiman, uh, played by Miles Teller, and he's just practicing in the practice room on the drums. And J.K. Simmons's character, uh, Terence. Uh, a very demanding um i would say sort of psychotic um yeah uh teacher finds him and uh andrew stops playing because he's nervous because like this huge figure within schaefer which is basically a, fi a fictionalized version of, of juilliard walks yeah. in and he sort of says so i'm paraphrasing here but he said something along, did i ask you to stop playing yeah and he was and like they... you can tell then that that kind of reverse it's... 
psychology yeah. manipulation is is already gonna take place it's basically a horror film isn't it yeah i think of it as a horror film because it's produced by blumhouse who are kind of one of the leading horror production companies at the moment yeah it's almost like he's as the film goes on he's selling his soul he there are little there's a kind of little meet cute with him and this kind of girl who works at a cinema and he's sweet and they start dating and then there's another scene later on where he just kind of says like in the least human way possible yeah i can't be with you because i need to dedicate my life to my drumming yeah and you're gonna stop and he's he almost isn't he's almost not acting like a human anymore no and he has been earlier on in the film but he's just kind of dedicating himself to this thing and there's a really uncomfortable scene at the dinner table with his family where he's just horrible to everyone a lot of that hit home you know the other people being really impressed by other pe- members of the family doing really cool things and then you're just doing your, your yeah. silly music so. well it's like what i was saying before when, when you know when you're uh, if you're an arty person spends ages on you know work you're working on whatever you're working on and then you just people don't don't get it and so that i mean i think that's probably what hit home but then on the flip side of that he is an arsehole in that and well, yeah, so but, yeah there's this great kind of descent into there's moments where he, and he's really drumming and he's tearing his hands apart drumming yeah. there's so much blood in this film it's it's fantastic <laughs> and well, he gets hit whole, by a car he crashes yeah, his yeah. car at one I mean, point what, does, do you think from that car crash he suffered any uh whiplash uh oh, uh-huh. oh god <laughs> um <laughs> but no he it's ironic because the music, which is meant to be the thing that fuels him and mm. fuels his passion, is the very thing that dehumanizes him. And it makes him into this insuperable, really quite narcissistic, really nasty character. Yeah. So Whiplash is so kind of taut. And the fact mm. that it's 90 minutes, we keep joking about how that's the perfect length for a film. And it is. But it means that this whole thing has so much energy to it. Yeah. It's, you could cut it with a knife. It's frenetic. It's like like a good jazz drummer it knows exactly what tempo it needs to be keeping well, that's what i'm saying you, you can't make a, a film about drumming and it not be not in, you know be about timing and not be that's you know yeah. well paced i think yeah exactly and damien chazelle also did la la land didn't he a couple of years later yes yeah, yeah. man's and got yeah man's man's got I, a theme well, did, well yeah but don't you think watching both of those films you kind of get the sense either he really loves jazz or he really hates jazz, and I yeah. cannot tell which one it is. He that that man has an interesting relationship with that genre of music, and I'm not sure he's okay. Uh, but because he said it's like almost autobiographical, hasn't he? This yeah, <laughs> which is a terrifying thought. But again, I'm sure it's not too far off. A lot of teachers, because it's such a, in some ways, a slight film. It knows what it's about. Yeah, it's got the themes it's dealing with, and it sticks with you afterwards. The thing is about Whiplash, it, it is uh, it, it is a psychological horror film. I think yeah. what Alex said about it being a horror film is incredibly accurate. Um, not just through the iconography or the way the story's told, but yeah, the, the, the characterization of this innocent up-and-coming drummer who wants to be the best in the world, kind of taken advantage of and manipulated by this <laughs> very angry um, J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, J.K. Simmons absolutely deserved that supporting actor role yeah, um totally. yeah and subsequently the oscar because his his performance is absolutely fantastic like mm. as a character actor he he's great and he's somebody who really does take it to the next level with with this role and i mean miles teller i have 
I think he fitted that role well. I, I haven't really seen anything else that he's been in, um, but I thought he was really good as well. I, I Him think drumming he's as well. Better in this than he is in other things. Yeah. I think this role yeah. suits him more than some of the other things he plays, perhaps. But I've not seen a whole bunch of his stuff. But I remember mm. when this came out, I was convinced that he was going to be the next big thing. And that doesn't seem to have happened for Doesn't him. seem to have materialized. I mean, he's 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 um he's got a supporting role in the upcoming Top Gun film. Oh, so of course. That's, yeah. still, that, I can see that working. Be... Which which I can see working mm. as well. And he's got a moustache in that. So yeah. he's oh. clearly kind of going for the... There we go. go yeah. He's going for it. Um, yeah. So yeah, Miles Teller, haven't heard that much sort of from him in terms of work in the last couple of years. But he, he's somebody who I thought fitted this role really well. Because the interesting thing is about Whiplash is that it did start out as a short film. It, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it sort of didn't, it didn't. And what I mean is, so because it was a short film first, you're right, he made a short film for funding. Um, and that was why this is nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. But he wrote the screenplay yeah. for the full film first, took a ch- like 15 minutes of it yeah. out and made and didn't change it that much and made a short film, which he then, to get funding to kind of show people what was up, and then he went back to the full the full feature yeah. of the film so even though yeah. he, it did you're kind of right i mean that's 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 factually accurate it always sits a bit weirdly with me because as far as i'm concerned he wrote the screenplay first i think it's a it's a best original screenplay contender yeah. didn't he but write anyway. the screenplay didn't he write the screenplay because he I, and this this is a story that i heard but didn't he write the screenplay for whiplash in sort of because he couldn't get la la land made is that is that right Oh, interesting. Oh, I haven't heard that, but that's I heard he was really struggling to get La La Land off the ground and he, he wrote Whiplash in kind of frustration of that. Um again, do correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I, I do believe that is <laughs> Answers the case. on the postcard. It is a very frustrating <laughs> the film has a lot of frustration in it. You can feel there's some sort of Yeah. And Giselle rate, himself yeah. is a musician, as yeah. far as I know, as well. Yeah. well um, and I he mean, was you'd have band, to be, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> to, to make those two films. <laughs> he was in a he was in a band at because he went to Princeton University, and um, mm. yeah, certainly it'd be interesting to hear whether he he drew the kind of the set pieces within Whiplash from his own experience being in a yeah. band. Because I mean, I've never been in a band. Um, never been cool I, I suppose either. we we have a wealth of knowledge. It, uh, t- t- today, I think, other yeah. people can say. Oh, well, no. Hang on. Um, although, although it, it is interesting, yeah. isn't it? That I'm, I'm not. I'm a musician, but I'm not a drummer. But both of you are drummers. Um, oh, Jedra, yes. of course, has been in a band for a little bit. I don't know why you didn't remember <laughs> I that. Should... Um, <laughs> I, I need to clarify this for my own sanity. Um, that I was, I was briefly um, the model of the drummer in Alex's band when they didn't have a drummer having never so like in in I, I was the drummer in the photographs and in the background of the music video having never touched the drum kit before and since then i've introduced <laughs> yeah. jonah as this is a drummer jonah yeah <laughs> and leading to me having anxiety dreams about being forced to drum for people i should maybe stop that <laughs> maybe it is it is stopped being funny i mean it will never stop being yeah. funny well for me but... if if whiplash yeah. if Wh- whiplash has taught us anything <laughs> whiplash is that if you want greatness out of me you've got to keep negging me yeah, basically yeah, well, th- why do you think i keep throwing chairs at you exactly right well, what it's do we what do we cross the face what do we think about the? Because I think the central premise of this film is summed up in that scene in the bar when he bumps yeah. back into Fletcher, and Fletcher's basically, and Fletcher's basically saying, "Well, how do you, you know, uh, you you get the greats 
under pressure. I'm only my method of teaching is that I put I ask so much of you and put you in into such a place that you and so anyone who can't handle that falls away. But the people who are left become great. But then that's, he says, "I've never had one of them." Yeah, but I which, tried, and I think that's just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Which he then undermines in the next scene as well. Oh, in the last, in, you know, the last stretch of the film when he tries to basically possible humiliate. Possible spoilers. Oh, yeah, poss- yeah. Spoiler alert. The last stretch of the film when he tries to humiliate Andrew on Neiman. stage. Surely that that just to me that takes any ambiguity out of that statement that he's saying because if if he was trying to make him as good as he can be, that, well, you know. no, but he he was, and then he was betrayed by Miles Teller. Hmm. And I think what he's doing in that, when he says, I've never had one, even though what it's doing for us, the audience is, is us going, oh, even though he thinks he's right, he's wrong. But what it's doing in the character's world, I think, is, Hmm. is he's dropping that there because he knows he's going to shaft Neiman is he's planning to do this. He's dropping that there. So Miles Teller goes, I want to be me. I want to try again. That's how I read that sequence. No, that makes more sense. Again, big, big spoilers here. That final stretch where he he kind of comes on and defies J.K. Simmons and does yeah. the drumming and, and just does it perfectly. Um, it, it's it's kind of, it's very ambiguous. We'll talk about this in a little bit when we talk about Birdman because they're the yeah. same film. Um, yeah, he, he it's, it's like, I think you're supposed to immediately go, oh, great, he's drumming really well, fantastic. And then you think about it and go, oh, no, he's he, that's him signing the yeah. the the deal with the devil well, it's, it? it makes me think of faust quite a lot this god that's a wanky statement oh, wow. isn't we're highbrow today <laughs> oh, <God>. oh <laughs> i just i saw myself for a moment there let's talk about <laughs> nietzsche as well and <laughs> what have i become <laughs> yes, I but it does voyeurism in this film is absolutely extraordinary and, and, <laughs> and the, the the subtle messaging but yeah, yeah. go on jonah uh, talk I, about faust I, it, it's just the whole deal with the it's, you know it's selling his soul to for his art in it that's the whole because right, well, I, I that was an under underwhelming because <laughs> I I think um, any problems I have with the last bit is because I fundamentally disagree with the idea but that I, I think you're bullying to, people makes them better I I think yeah. it's not I think that's I don't think what that last sequence is doing Cameron I I wonder what you think about this it it's not the film going. <gasps> JK was right. It's him going, you see, what this guy has done, he's totally wrong, but he's persuaded this innocent that he's right. And this innocent yeah, has yeah. he's had one success through this um teaching. But that success is more about him than it is about what JK Simmons has put him through, you know? And and I think it's very much a criticism of that approach. And it kind of it's supposed to be you're supposed to feel uneasy when he's doing all those incredible bits of drumming at the end. Again, we just see another situation where Andrew is absolutely thrashing it out and is and is you can see the, the blisters on his hands and it is quite oh, an uncomfortable yeah. scene to oh, watch. Blisters with those, on my fingers. With, with those deep close-ups of the fingers mm. and, and the and the blood, it is quite extraordinary. Um but we have kind of a a, a shot reverse shot of, of deep focused close-ups on the eyes of Andrew and of Fletcher. And then we don't see Fletcher smile at the end. We see his face kind of c- 
curve, which is a bit difficult. You know, when when you when you're J.K. Simmons, your face kind of moves in different ways. Like you smile, <laughs> well, but then your your brow suddenly goes up, and that always happens to me when I'm J.K. Simmons. I know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so from that, you don't get the satisfaction of seeing the smile, but you do see the eyes, which are quite intimidating on J.K. Simmons. And then the film ends. That ending sequence was quite ambiguous because you want to know what happens next. Uh, but it, it's, yeah, it, it, it's very well done. And that final performance really was kind of Andrew's last chance in his mind to really come back from from sort of being so so kind yeah. of disparaged by Fletcher. He almost leaves finally, with his dad. Yeah. yeah, and to finally give... You know, because yeah, of course, because his dad is watching in the background. Yeah, and, and his, um, his dad gives him a chance. Yeah. His dad gives him a chance. So in a way, it rounded off the story really nicely because you have Fletcher finally smiling at Andrew and going, "You are fucking perfect." Yeah. And then Andrew going, "I've done it." And then it ends there. So I thought it was it was quite an apt ending, really. Yeah, his dad is actually quite an interesting character because I, I think at the, at the beginning, when when he cause you see him, he's he's going to the cinema with his dad. That's like a real to watch thing. Rafifi. Yeah, which but, I wrote um, down. Um, but he's um, which is uh, Will, which is Swahili for no, it's Rafiki. It's, it's it's Rafiki is a is a very famous heist movie. Ah, um, I didn't it's know one that. Of the very one of the first kind of big successful heist movies. But his dad, um, I think his dad gets bumped by someone and apologizes to them and something like that. his dad's presented as quite a weak, quite mm. weak, and then you see kind of as it's only after he's met, met Fletcher and he's been taught by him that he you know becomes a bit more arrogant and talks out at the dinner table and stuff like that so you see his character change because of this different male because his, his, his dad's a, his, his dad's a single dad as well that's a point that yeah. comes up quite a lot that his mum left his dad and him it's, it's not a it's particularly nice way to portray his dad but as this kind of kind of beta male it almost sets up at the beginning. You think, oh, I hope he doesn't turn out like his dad. I hope he really, it yeah. almost makes you more willing for Fletcher to kind of get his paws on him. And then by the end, you're like, oh no, oh, his dad's yeah. a normal person. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because um, when his dad finds out what's been going on, he's the one that tries yeah. to pull him out of school. Again, rightfully so. <laughs> but I think also, but the thing with about Fletcher is Fletcher is, he's teaching at college, right? It's a good college, but he's not, I don't think he's where he wants to be in the music world, is he? Yeah, well, even he's when frustrated we see him where he is, certainly. Yeah. I think there's a great deal of that within, and, and I think, again, this is a testament to how J.K. Simmons really, really took that character and, you know, developed it on from the short film and made it into this, oh, you know, almost psychotic kind of um, villain character you know, he is somebody who pushes for the best and his methods are unconventional. And, you know, as we see in the film, he does get found out um, as a result of, um, I think, I believe the character was called Sean, who's who who we don't meet, but he was a past student who yeah, died yeah, yeah. as a result yeah. of a depression that he fell into as a result of being part of Fletcher's band and, and subsequently uh, subjected to abuse from Fletcher. And, you know, certainly when we're talking about these characters, we're not condoning this violence, you know, this violence and this abusive behavior, but you know, it does happen. This is the real yeah. world and people get incredibly demanding. I mean, I've worked on, I won't say where, but I have worked on sets where that has happened and yeah. people often sort of keep to themselves and, 
they just do what that person says. Um, I'm not necessarily one of those people, but in terms of like, you have to pick your battles basically. And, well, yeah. Um, yeah. There's a kind of power play thing that you get people in the artistic world who are, who are, you know, bullies and they get away with it because there's this, you know, that idea of heightened art being excusing certain behavior. Yeah. It's glazed with passion. And I think yeah. that that's, that's the excuse that's been used with me. Cause I, I mean, I've, I've worked on sets where I've been shooting something and, and the director will get quite, um, frustrated. And, um, I, I don't take it personally because often when you're working on a set and it's an independent production, it's a high, it's a high kind of volatile yeah. environment. Everyone's under a lot of pressure. They're often doing it for very little or no money. Um, but just in the wider creative industries, there are a lot of Fletchers out there, unfortunately. Um, and the sooner they get found out, the better, because from my, you know, early kind of experience as I've been working, um, I've met far too many like him. Yeah. And again, they do use oh, it's my passion as an excuse. They don't actually realise that what they're doing has real consequences. And I think that's what this film highlights really well is that Andrew is a vulnerable character and he is somebody who wants to be successful, wants to be the best. And Fletcher plays into that. He knows yeah. that he wants to be the next Buddy Rich. So he <laughs> absolutely tears him apart and then puts him back together again at the end. So in a way it shows that things come full circle and people do, do get found out in the real world, but that some people really do produce their best start when they're, when they're under a lot of pressure. Um, well, I may not be one of those people, yeah. but well, I'm not either. No, it's, uh, you know, some people, some people want that. And if they do, then that's their choice. But I do but, think the film, I, th I think, yeah, he is where he wants to be Nick Neiman, but I, I still don't think that that ending is a happy one. No, I think I think no. he is destined for a life of drugs and sadness and and he'll never peak past what we see in the film I think I I I really the first one I saw it I thought it was an ambiguous ending but the more I think about it the more I think it's totally explicit that what we see at the end is Fletcher winning and that's a bad thing yeah because Fletcher is fundamentally wrong that's what I think I know I've said this already but but yeah yeah anyway so rounding off with Whiplash, I think obviously because it is a musical film, it's important just to make note oh, of the music. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, fantastic. Uh, the, the, the fantastic saw from Justin Hurwitz, who has, you know, a frequent collaborator of Damien Chazelle, um, has scored each of his films. And I believe, did they attend university together? Yes, they did. And Damien Chazelle did not go to Princeton. He went to Harvard University. Ooh, My apologies right. for wow. that fact, <laughs> for that factual error. But um no, the um, I mean the 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 piece Whiplash by um, I I can't remember who composed it, but uh, it's yeah, it's uh, Whiplash, oh, it Whiplash, sticks Whiplash. in you so much, don't you? Who it's Hank Levy. It was Hank yeah. Levy that wrote Whiplash, and uh, a very difficult piece of music to play. I've never tried it on the drums. I would hate to do it because <laughs> the last time I played the drums, um, I I had a very Funnily enough, I had a very demanding drum teacher. His name was Rosebud. I believe he still works to this day. Um, and wow, that's he, bold of you mentioning his name. Yeah. Mentioning well, you know what? I, <laughs> What's we the didn't dress, like Cam? Each other. We didn't like each other that much. Any lawsuits? Um, 
Could you <laughs> direct them to Cameron Reed? Not if up. the Rosebud. music service wants to sue me, they're they're more than welcome because it's not, it would not give me exactly Citizen Kane podcast. Okay, he does all of his own drumming, doesn't he? Yeah, um, yeah, which is incredible. I it think absolutely it's, incredible. Yeah, it's like uh, Richard Allen learning to uh, yeah fly a plane. Well, did it um, was I? I assumed he was a drummer before, but I just, think he was, but he he had to brush up his talent. Yeah, oh yeah, one definitely. of the three drummers. You know, at one point there are three. Yeah, drummers yeah. In, his Fletcher's band yeah one of them is a is a drummer and the drum teacher of the other two. Oh, okay so that suggests to me that miles teller w- could drum so they yeah. weren't going from scratch but had to i mean i mean it's incredible the stuff he does mm. um and presumably he punched through his own toms as well yeah uh, sorry no he punched through his own snare drums there we go um, oh, we'll get letters. We'll get letters. One imagines we will. It's yeah. annoying almost that we're not. I mean, we're all sort of musicians, but we're not kind of jazzers. And, and no, we're not. If any jazzers happen to listen to this and and have thoughts about Whiplash, please get in touch with me because I'm very interested in this. And mm. maybe we can arrange something down the line where I talk to some jazz drummers and jazz people and and yeah. just normal drummers as well. Maybe who knows? Well, anyone who um, has any kind of thoughts, please like comment on things because yeah, uh, tweet us insta us email yeah. us we have an email don't we we do podcast at gmail.com neck yes. n-e-c-k at that uh, podcast at gmail.com yeah mm. um cool yeah. right weirdly whiplash uh is a film about jazz drumming but of all of these films it's not the film with the most jazz drumming in it yes yeah um, <laughs> yes because that uh merit goes to birdman or Brackets. The, um, <laughs> I can hear the, your temples like swelling up now, Alex. As you said, um, well, shall I? Shall I let someone else take the lead with this one? Maybe. I'm um, happy to take the lead on that. Yeah. Okay. okay. Take the wheel, Cam. Take the wheel. Uh, just to save our colleague from having a bit of an aneurysm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance? Uh, open brackets. Close brackets. Um, it's a film. I would say, and I've written in my notes for the pod, it is a film that's, I think it's a deconstruction of superheroes because it follows Mm. Rigan Thompson, who is like a washed up superhero actor who played Birdman, this kind of Batman-esque character. And he's constantly haunted by the presence of of Birdman, also voiced and played, uh, I should say, by Michael Keaton. It's uh, directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inurita, and it was shot by uh, Emmanuel Libitsky, one of my favourite cinematographers of all time. I think it's him and Deakins that are probably my two that I would go to and oh, lovely have five minutes lovely in a room with because they're just yeah amazing. But it but the thing that the thing was is that and we you know we can get straight into the technicalities of it is that it was shot to look like one continuous. Yeah. I would say it's one continuous sequence because technically it's been edited. And yes. Yeah. I yeah. really hate it when people watch a film like Birdman or indeed 1917. They go, "Oh my god, it's all like shot in one. It's all one shot." I was like, it's, no. "No, it's not one shot." Let's just. Well, I, I particularly have, with, I have a bit of a resentment towards those people. Particularly with Birdman, is because it it shows the progression of time, so it, it presents it in such an it obvious way. It takes place way. over a couple of days. It feels um, like mo- more like montage at points, even though it's yes. obviously one inverted air quotes yeah. to avoid being hit by a chair shot <laughs> and, and it's, so so the story of birdman is that riggan thompson is um basically what he's done is that he has come to broadway in kind of a, a, a he wants to sort of reinvent himself as this sophisticated 
um, actor on Broadway, and he's managed to get together some money to um, do a play on Broadway. And it's a uh, adaptation of Raymond Carver's short story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Yeah, and it's kind of him trying to um, trying to get away from Birdman because he's kind of haunted by the constant presence of being sort of typecast as, as this superhero character. Great supporting cast: Zach Galifianakis plays Jake, his agent. Um, mm-hmm. Edward Norton plays Mike Schreiner, who's kind of this methods kind of a, he's i mean he's kind of a prick well, he's playing film. edward norton isn't he but he's playing edward norton he's playing this really i mean edward norton if you are listening i'm sure you're a lovely man but mike shriner's like this very well he's a method. rapist at one point a bit. He, yeah, oh, yeah yeah okay sorry we'll, i'm not we'll saying he's to, exactly we'll edward rape. norton yeah i'm as... just saying edward norton turns up playing a method actor who has trouble with people because he wants to change the script isn't really a stretch is it that's what yeah. i'm saying yeah He's very yeah. good in it. He's yeah. very good in it. No, he's, yeah. He's, and his character is much more of a wanker than Edward Norton is, I'm sure. Um, oh God, you hope I, so. I, I need to I need I need to stop talking about this film. I'm gonna get cross. <laughs> um Edward Norton, Andrew Risborough, Amy Ryan, uh, Emma Stone, who plays Sam, uh Riggan's daughter. She's amazing. And probably my favorite casting, like even though it's a great cast, probably my favorite casting of it, uh Lindsay Duncan, who's quite a famous uh scottish actor so she plays tabitha dickinson who's like this very kind of edgy new york times i, I think she's new york times or she's alluded to, yeah. to be new york times critic who who riggan is kind of at war with and they kind of meet in this bar by circumstance and he's sort of there trying to convince her to write a good review and she's like i'm gonna ruin your play and all that kind of thing and uh, you know i i like birdman um and I like it because it, it, you know, the the way it was shot is incredibly hmm. uh, dynamic, and I think it was probably one of the one, you know, technically the best film of the year. So it, it won best cinematography at the Oscars, um, and Emmanuel Lubitsky won that, and um, I, I really think that that was well deserved because, technically speaking, this film is absolutely fantastic. It was shot. I think primarily on a steady cam rig, which is something that it's sort of a belt that goes around somebody's back, somebody's waist, and then you've got like this this arm. And it basically looks as if you're walking. And when you are using one, and this is something that particularly they've had to do with films like 1917, is all of the scenes have to be rehearsed like vigorously. Like, I mean, you would rehearse and block beforehand, but the timings have to be right. The movements have to be right. Cause one false move and you could end up with somebody hitting the camera. Yeah. And um, so, no, I, I really enjoyed it because of that. And it was kind of the first film for me of that, of that sort of time in my life where I kind of looked at it and thought, wow, technically this is something I really kind of want to make one day. I think this film is interesting because obviously it, it, uh, the casting of Michael Keaton is, is, is I was going to say on the nose, but that is also quite on the nose <laughs> for this film. Um, but I think, I don't, I, I don't know if I can, I 100% uh, agree it's totally about superhero films. Because I think if we'd, if you'd made the, the version, a version of this film several decades earlier, it might have been a, I think it would have been a pastiche of cowboy films or it would have been the blockbuster I, I, of the time. I, I think, don't think it, is a deconstruction of sorry to disagree with you cam i don't think it is a deconstruction of superheroes i think it's a deconstruction of actors well i think exactly it's the screen actors yeah i think what's i think it's why the the floating camera because because when we talked about this before alex we were talking about obviously in comparison to 1917 again Mm. and how 
1917 again. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different film. So Zac, e- Zac Efron <laughs> stars in the first Perry World gets, War. Get, get, yeah. Taken back to his 17-year-old self as he fights in the trenches of World War That I. would be a good film, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, but, no, so, but I think they're, they're kind of actually re-watching this film now. I do think it's really justified. The, f- the floating camera gives it all this weird dreamlike quality. And I think what the film... I think what this film is about is about the uh, fear of becoming old and irrelevant. I think it's a a feeling kind of, Mm. yeah, it's, it's, there's the struggle within um, Riggan is like, is to A, want to be famous and want to be well-regarded, but the thing that he is famous for is not, is a bit pulpy and a bit superfluous in it. It's, it's, he's, he's famous for making, big blockbuster superhero movies he wants to be famous as uh, he wants well he wants as to be Ed norton's character doesn't he he yeah, wants yeah, to be yeah. a me, you know, a, meth, a stage actor an important actor you know he's had a he's had a successful career but he's still wanting and still and it's got to the and uh, what i feel what this film is saying is that he's got to this point in his life where everything is sort of washing over him and that's what you get with this kind of you know ethereal camera yeah. Um I shall we, we unleash you Alex? Yes, Alex. Let's let's hear because obviously we're both quite taken by the film, but we would like to hear your perspective because I'm sure yeah. You know. Okay. Yeah, we just so, yeah. It's beautifully shot. <laughs> it's brilliantly acted. It's 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 directed amazingly. I think even the script is quite good. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I and I don't even know why. I I mean I don't. It, it's a fine watch. This is the second yeah. time I've seen it. I've seen it a few years. Not in the cinema, but it's on my laptop a few years ago. And this is the second time. It's enjoyable. I didn't have a horrible time watching it. I laughed a couple of times. I think Emma Stone's great in it. Oh, it's really annoying. It's. It's the it's so kind of pleased with itself throughout. Ooh. It thinks it's so clever, but is and the, it oh, thinks I, what it's saying is so important. And I think what so what I imagine you're about hmm. to say, Jan. Yeah, no, I think that's the point. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. actually, what it's saying is that actors are. This is my problem with it. Okay, and hmm. I know some actors that lovely people, right? But this film clearly, absolutely loves actors yeah which is fine you're completely allowed films that love actors are fine too that's that's yes. fine but it's desperately pretending that it's that it hates actors yeah and that's what annoyed me pick a fucking lane you know i and and oh and edward norton comes on and he's oh he's this kind of it it's not for normal people it's for actors right oh, oh i've been in a play with an actor like this oh i've tried to run my own play on broadway i get that oh, no. oh for god's sake it's for it oh jesus i hate it <laughs> see when you so that's an interesting point because through that lens i'm looking at it and going well hang on yeah there is a sense of pretension to the film because it is catering for it, it's kind of showing this this inner world of Broadway and, and New York culture and, and and the bourgeois and um yeah I, I I do agree with that in a certain way I think the way that the story is conveyed I mean the writing as you say I I, I thought it was great and um the way it's constructed was very very good but the whole kind of oh here's a method actor 
here's him like playing up and obviously there's a very um there's a very difficult scene in which edward norton's character you know attempts to rape his co-star yeah and that's kind that's, of treated as a little event that's not yeah really i think the that's the bit that joke. i would feel yeah that's the bit that lo- the film loses me on because i think i think it's if you know, if you may, you can have that in a film, and you can make, and you know, because Regan does react at that moment, and he does attack his co-star, but not because of that is because he upstages him in the play, and I think I, which it's is too flippant. It's a little bit you, too flippant of that for me. It, it is really quite, you know, I found it a bit troubling watching that, but I do agree with you, Alex, in that the film it does kind of show you this very limited kind of. It shows you this world that's only for a few, and it does struggle to kind of distinguish itself in, okay, so these are actors. And again, like you, I know quite a few actors and, you know, hello actors. We, we do like you. Uh, we, we do. No, you. I want, I really want <laughs> to be clear. I, I, I love everyone apart from the people in this film. Well, not the actors in this film, but the people, the characters, the characters in this the film. Characters I find everyone, in, they are, everyone they are in this film I wanted to punch in the fucking face. Um, and uh, oh, and Emma Stone's kind of nice. I kind of like Emma Stone's characters, and in fact, the women in general I've found much more compelling than the men. But then again, they're not really given much to do. There's that really weird bit where the two actresses kiss, and it, uh, yeah. and that's fine. But it kind of comes out of nowhere, and it doesn't do anything else with it. And it's yeah. sort of that suddenly the film feels like a teenage boy in its pants going, look, they're in there. And, and oh, and all the fucking jazz drumming <laughs> for no reason. Oh, God, we yeah. get it. You're fucking pretentious. Just calm just the like, fuck down, film. Oh, all the way through. Oh, look, there's a person. There's a costume person. It's incessant. It's incessant. It insists upon itself. And talking of jazz drumming, don't you think if you look at it, very different kind of angles, but it's the same film as Whiplash. And Whiplash made me so less annoyed. Um, yeah. That's the other thing about Birdman. Everything in it is brilliant. I think yeah. that's what makes me more cross. Nothing in it is wrong. But together, I just got angry. And I'm I'm surprised that I'm getting so angry right yeah. now. But oh my God. I think it's... It's a, f- I don't think, and it is, I do like the script, but I don't, it's not, the story in this film doesn't matter. Well, I don't yeah, think. who cares? It's a, fuck cares? But, oh, no, Get over but, yourself, Keaton. But it create. it's what it is doing. And uh, this again might be just what I've got from it, but it, cre- it creates a very strong, it's a, about a feeling and it's about a headspace. And I do think you really, I think possibly some of the weird uncomfortableness you get from it is because it's creating this headspace of of a man who is on on the verge of a breakdown i think yeah and it does so i do it does invoke okay. something quite emo, something quite emotional in you yeah for can, good or can, bad can i talk about the ending very briefly yes Big spoilers. massive Big spoilers. spoilers and again um based on looking at the comparisons with this and whiplash at the ending of Whiplash, we talked about how brilliant it was that it ends even before J.K. Simmons smiles. Hmm. And you don't know, I'm sorry, spoilers for Whiplash as well. You don't know whether that's good or bad, but you get a sense that it's bad. Now, yeah. Birdman sort of ends, well, the, the, it, the story climaxes with he's on stage, Regan Thompson, Michael Keaton, and in the play, he kills himself at the end. And he has a real gun um, and he actually kills himself. And then the film carries on, and um, 
he kind of it's i think he dies on stage but the film's kind of like hey and it, everything wins he wins everything everything goes right and actually shooting his face off was exactly what he needed to do to be famous and Lindsay duncan's written a review that says amazing even though she definitely i think it's a dream sequence that bit at the end right and he flies yeah. out the window at the end and emma stone smiles um but i can't read that film ending i can't read that scene as reality because i think if it does it just completely derails its 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 uh, point so i'm pretty certain that the filmmaker intends this to be a dream sequence and so why don't they just end it with he he shoots himself and it's great because well it's not great that he shoots himself but there's a pause and the audience are clearly mm. like whoa did he just actually and then they start clapping and don't you yeah. think the film would be much more powerful if it ended there yeah i think I'd, i'm i and think i agree shorter. I like, I think, but what do you think, Cam, with that? Because it is a, it is an interesting scene, that last bit. It's the, the ending, again, that standing ovation, I think it should have ended there. I do mm. agree. Regan shoots himself in the head on stage. He receives a standing ovation and then it could just cut to black and that's it. But then we have this weird kind of, I would call it, it seems like a dream sequence, and it might well be a dream sequence. Whether it is actually real life or not, we can debate. I am tempted to say that that sequence is not real, that, that that's yeah. just something that's in Riggan's head, maybe. That's him his going dying to, moments. that's divine intervention, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I do agree that it it just should have ended on that standing ovation. And I th- yeah. you know, we could have rounded off with some jazz drumming and then the yeah. guys rolled <laughs> More Oh, I, so it's such a good moment to have him, you know, blow his brains out and then the audience applaud. That is such a good moment to end on. So yeah. Yeah. even if he doesn't kill himself and he just shoots off his nose like that scene tells us he does, doesn't, don't you think that undermines that decision as well? Because he's not even committed to... I'm not... Well, I assume he... Of a dodgy thing to say, isn't it? But what do, do you mean? Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, it's not... I think it's implied that he, the nose shooting off was an accident. I don't no, think. I know, but that's what I'm saying. He means yeah. to kill himself. Yeah, and then jumps and out the window again. And then, I think ju- yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Oh. I think that's what that's what I read that as, and then I got confused by the flood. I mean, I was just so to... crossed by this point yeah. that it it wasn't. I feel like I've thrown a big load of negativity over this discussion. I'm very well. Sorry. Let's. I I think in we should... short, I thought this film smelled yeah. like balls. <laughs> um, uh, should we? Should we talk about boyhood? Because I'm very excited to talk about boyhood. Boyhood, 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 boyhood. 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 I had never seen this film yeah. before this. I didn't see it when it came out. I I, I, I love this. I, I watched it and I just fell in love. It's... I fell in love with this film. I saw it twice in two days. Yeah. Um. I just had to watch it again. And I could watch it again right now. I, yeah. I... I, I we were talking about long films, liking long films that feel long because they don't mm. really go anywhere. This is absolutely that. I could have had four more hours of this. Yeah. I think it's extraordinary. It's more than a film. It's it's transcendent, I think. Um, I think it's incredible. I love it. I love it. I love it. So I did, I w- I did watch this when it came out and I watched it. In, I went to, I can't remember what it's called, the little kind of cinema in York. Mm. So I watched it with um, with my parents the first time. So I didn't know anything about it. Like my parents took me to watch it. I watched it with them. And I think that really coloured my experience of watching it because I watched it, because it, it, it's a film, of, it's, it's, you know, obviously the title is Boyhood, but it is, I think, just as much a film yeah. about parenthood. Um, and again, yes. so when I rewatched it for this podcast, 
I was back home by this point. So I watched it with my whole family. Yeah. And again, I think that was a different experience. So if I just watched it alone, because I think because my family were chiming in, especially in the earlier scenes when they're little, little kids, um, you know, were reacting to it. And because there's, you know, because there's it, but what the film does in this in a similar way, as I was talking about Birdman is it is there's not really a story to it because they sort of he sort of made the story up as they went along i believe or tailored it to um the lead actor a little bit but it what it does is it invokes a, a you know a sense of nostalgia and a feeling of you know like i again i didn't there's loads of things that happened to the character of mason in this film that i i haven't experienced i'm not an american child yeah, yeah. i'm a, a similar age but not yeah a yeah. couple of years isn't it it's, it's, it's yeah. not weird couple of, couple of years we're a couple of years younger than mason yeah but i didn't uh, didn't have the exact same you know experience i'm not from a i i you know i, I grew up with two parents yeah and yeah, yeah. two younger siblings in britain um and but i still felt nostalgic for this childhood yeah yeah what it, yeah, it's like when you watch a TV show that really becomes part of your life, and then it yeah, ends and you that's exactly what it's like. I was like worried about halfway through. I was worried that we'd be coming to the end soon. I started yeah. feeling scared about these characters leaving my life. It, I mean, it's crazy yeah. how much it affected me. Um, yeah, how about Cam? you, Cam? Yeah. Um, so I looked at this from, a, which is interesting that you guys say that because, to the best of my knowledge, and I've I've met both sets of your parents are lovely people um i i can relate to mason a bit more because yes yeah i i, I think i grew up in pretty much very similar circumstances um kind of and you raised, became a photographer yeah and and you know being raised by uh, my mum and then my mum having a partner later on in life in my teens and kind of having a distant father who you know i don't you know, I'll be very honest here on the pod. I don't have a relationship with, um, for, you know, for similar reasons, because I think that anyone in that situation, it's very complicated when you've got parents that are, mm. that are separated and the circumstances can vary, but just on a, on an emotional kind of playing field, um, you know, it, it can be, it can have a massive impact in, in, in how you develop, you know, for, for me, I see myself more as somebody who, I'm a, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of strong women. I'm a fan of of sort of, you know, and I, I do think I am more kind of, <laughs> you know, I, I do think I sort of respond more to that, which is why I think Boyhood for me was a really, um, I, I guess for me it was more personal because I've yeah. been through that situation in yeah. in iterations in my life. And uh, no, I thought the because the, the the interesting thing about Boyhood is that it was shot over twelve years. It's with the same cast, and as uh, as Alex said in the preface, um, you know Richard Linklater, the director writer, he actually kind of incorporated changes that he saw in each in each sort of actor in the script. Yeah, and he allowed those changes to form the story, which I think is a massive part of why Boyhood oh, yeah. was so successful totally. and so poignant, because he gave the actors space to breathe. It was almost like a documentary. He just observed them, and he formed his narrative around them. Yes, there were plot devices that he put in to kind of form his narrative arc, but in terms of the content, it was really over to the actors, and and the way that they kind of delivered those plot points and I think that they did it incredibly well um so so yeah I think 
for me, yeah, it's it's obviously going to be a bit more personal. But I'd be interested to hear, guys, what your kind of view is as as people who come from, for want of a better phrase, um, the kind of nuclear situation of well, having two yeah. parents and I, and and yeah. I mean, J- Jonah is a bit more nuclear. Yeah, Jonah, I think I'm the closest to what you describe. I, I, yeah, I would I, um, at the my, two. Yeah parents are still together but i i my i'm the product of my dad's second marriage and i have uh an older brother and half brother and sister so i'm the baby i'm ethan hawk's baby yeah uh, yeah basically in this but yeah i found it i was expecting not to relate at all and as jonah was saying i don't think it matters that you're not to a certain extent you totally relate because these sort of relationships, however different they are, are fundamental relationships. You have a relationship with your mum and your dad, even if they are in the same house. Though, you know, I've had conversations in the car with my dad in the same way that Ethan Hawke does with Ella Coltrane in this. And, and uh, similarly with my mum, uh, stuff like that. So I do think it almost doesn't matter because we've all grown up. So that's enough. You yeah. all have that feeling of being kind of pulled from situation to situation everyone who watches it has a person to hook onto don't they yeah um you either yeah. see the, and i'm sure if we watch it in like 20 years we'll we'll relate to Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke yeah um their characters i kind of almost don't have anything to say other than i love it i love it yeah. i love it i I, yeah. I think it's and that, that's the other thing i was going to say so so firstly yeah you relate regardless because i think we've all grown up so we get that. Even if we get nothing else, we get that. Certainly. We know what yeah. it feels mm. like. And he, Linklater, very cleverly shows you adult situations through the eyes of a child. So you see things that we know as adults what that means, but you're not seeing them like that. You're seeing yeah. them without any of the context. And I think that's yes. incredible. But also because you're spending so much time with these people and they're growing up in front of your eyes and they're getting older in front of your eyes, yeah, you feel nostalgic about their life so even you, if you don't relate you do. to the experiences you, do. you relate to them because yeah because it's happening in front of you it is when especially because because you are seeing the relationships grow and you're seeing human beings grow within the film you become emotionally invested in them and their story and and i would i'd be interested to hear of anyone that that hasn't felt like that watching this yeah. film. because yes yeah putting my own experiences aside like i'm sure i would have been very emotionally invested in this film and and sort of seeing seeing what went on i mean for example there's there's an early part in the in the film where i think it's in i think it's when mason's about it's in 2004 i can't remember how old he is then but there's a situation we should say briefly sorry to cut you off cam that's all right um um, so i did a bit of research lr coltrane the actor who plays mason jr um goes by gender neutral pronouns now okay great so they're a they're a they or a them so but if we okay, say good. he the way, we're referring to yeah. the character because uh for mason jr the character they play in the film um is is as far as we can tell from what the film tells us yeah uh, identifies as a male so so okay. when we say just to make it a bit simpler for everyone when we say he we're talking about mason jr when we say they we're talking about, about ella uh, ella right. unless Thank we, we get it out. wrong and then we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll work with that when we when yeah. we make little mistakes but yeah yeah there's a sequence where um mason is watching his parents argue and oh, i think yeah. he's watching through a window so we can't hear what yeah. they're saying as far as i can recall um 
but yeah, for, for, for me, like that just tapped into every single scenario I can imagine of seeing that happen. And, yeah. uh, it was very, um, it was quite emotional for me kind of seeing that because I've been in that position and I know exactly what it's like. You're kind of, you're forced away from a distance because whichever parent is more responsible wants to protect you from what's going on. But you're also inherently curious because you want to know and you want to see what's going on. And um, there are little instances like that, I think, in in every film that tackles the kind of issue of growing up and adolescence and and, and divorce. But um, no, I just thought it was worth highlighting that 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 was quite a, a poignant moment for me seeing that. And and again, it's it's a it is a testament to Richard Linklater's understanding of the themes, and and that's why I think this film thematically is is so powerful, and yeah. then subsequently why the narrative is so powerful because Linklater has an understanding. I don't know whether it's from personal experience or research, but he understands the distance that can happen between a child and parents when that kind of situation occurs. I think from interviews I've watched, so again with um, with both Richard Linklater and Ella Coltrane, is that the original, the setup of the family is more autobiographical to Linklater. Mm. And then how the character develops in terms of his interest in his kind of more artistic personality is um, influenced by um, Ella Coltrane, I think. So, because yeah. there are a lot of interviews it talks about in the early... So the, the way they made this film is fascinating. So like, yeah, I think right. he talks about this about... So they, they shoot a 15, 10-minute sequence every year for 12 years. So apparently that's about three days of production a year. So for each of those three days of production each year, there's all the pre-production that has to go into that and the location scouting. That's quite. Uh, there are a few sequences where they feature the same location, but quite a lot of it... They, I mean, it's it's... A, you know, it's a series of vignettes, but there are a lot of them um, uh, take uh, appear in new new places. I, I, it's a weird one. Both the, so I understand, I can understand why I love it. I love this film, but I can completely mm. understand why someone would not, yeah, um, would find it maybe a little bit dull or languorous or without point. Just like I hated Birdman but actually I can completely understand if someone were to come up to me and said that's my favorite film of all time I would completely understand I completely understand why you could love that film um and the fact that I'm having both of those experiences with both of these films I think <laughs> is very strange but uh yeah it's a but I it doesn't matter because it does it does it for me yeah um and I I, I so this isn't my line because I love this film but I checked out mark Kermode's review of this and i just yeah. had a quick scroll through the comments on youtube because i like i like you know seeing what the real people are saying and someone who hadn't liked the film described it i think this is brilliant so i'm gonna nick this this random person's yeah description they said it was sort of a bit like going around to your neighbor's house and they make you watch a whole bunch of you go around to your neighbor's <laughs> house and they show you a whole bunch of home videos and halfway <laughs> through you realize you hate them <laughs> that is brilliant i love that I that, is, that is i i mean i disagree but that is that's, that's very that's very that's quite funny actually and if you're not on board then you're not on board and that's yeah and that's kind of fine i think what again what the what the director said when he was talking about he said he he, try, he was trying to come up with an idea for this film and couldn't think of one moment in childhood that was important enough 
to base a whole script yeah. around. Yeah. And then, so then the idea came to him, oh, I'll do all, I'll, I'll do something that expands that period of time where you're going from being, a, you know, you go from being a child to being an adult. There is the question of, would this film have been as impactful if it was shot, say, over three months with three different sets of actors for each era? Mm. I, I highly doubt that. Yeah. I think the amount of emotional investment, I think any person who doesn't necessarily relate to that situation gets from it, just from hearing what you two have said, I think tells us enough to say that because of the way that it was constructed and the way that it was written and planned out by Linklater, I, I doubt it would have had as much of, of any praise as it did yeah, with yeah. with having Arquette yeah. and Hawke and, and the rest of the cast. I, 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 really, I, I really think that. I think it wouldn't have had... Yes, it's an impactful story, but because we see the development, but, both physically and mentally, yeah. that's quite crucial. But at the same time, don't you think that that's not a problem? I think that's a really weird criticism. I'm not saying you're saying it's a problem, but I think that's a weird criticism to level at it. Oh, but it wouldn't have been as good if it was different. Well, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the whole, yeah. Films wouldn't well, that, be, wouldn't I be mean, as good if they would. simplifies my... It'd be a different film. But, yeah, that... I, 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 think, yeah. I think the fact that it, I think... Yeah, it, it is. Of course, it's heavily relying on this kind of we're shooting it over 12 years thing. That's the central hook of the film. Yeah. Star Wars is relying on the fact that it's set in space, but it's kind of a Kurosawa story, you know, like yeah. that's just the thrust. Um, but at the same time, you take individual pieces like you've got 12 lovely short films there, right? It's yeah. still got the fact that this film still has narrative thrust and it's maybe less thrustful than some films. But it goes places. And yeah, the kids don't have much agency at the beginning because kids don't have agency. And that's something you realise when you watch this film. And yeah. um, I think it's an incredible feat of filmmaking. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to contradict what you were saying, Cam. I, th I think you're totally right. And I'm, I think that's almost... Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't, no, I I can't say anything I other than fair... I love this film. I love this film. Yeah, that's a film. fair point. And I think certainly what I was trying to say was, is that, I mean, I, I really like the story regardless. I think the way that it was written was, was very well, but we do have to take note of the fact that how much of the story that we see in the end result is as a result of Linklater seeing how these people, mm. aside from the characters mm. develop. I think that's quite, that's quite interesting. Had you seen it before you watched it for this, Cam? I had seen it before in part. Right. Um, but oh, the, in part, know, this, interesting. Because I would have expected this to have been like your favorite film of all time. Well, um, I yeah, I understand where you're coming from, and I think that it is certainly one of my favorite films. And but I suppose for me, I I wouldn't necessarily watch it out of choice a lot, just because again of my own personal experience. Oh, of course, but, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I think you're right. I do think it's one of my favorite films of all time, and. Um, yeah, it's a piece of filmmaking. I really admire it. I think it's a, it's the, obviously you can you know, it's impossible to plan 12 years in advance where the characters were going to go. But I think if you look at, uh, you know, it's a very nostalgic film in terms of like, if you look at the devices or the things that are focused on, it focuses a lot on technology early on in terms of the, like the shots literally focus on, yeah, TV screens, yeah. games, the books that the kids are reading, the songs that the kids are singing. And the films think, they're talking about as well. Yeah. I think the foresight to do that and think what is going to be nostalgic 
looking back on this now is it does speak to the the mind of Richard Linklater in terms of the foresight in making this film. Well, but, but also it's a great hook, isn't it? That yeah, it's yeah. just a million dollar idea. That, yeah. That's just genius. And to have the the stones to pull it off as well is is amazing. Linklater, this is I find this really interesting. Do you know what his next project is? After oh um, uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, so so before Boyhood, he did the Before trilogy, right, which stars Ethan Hawke. Mm. and is the story of a relationship in three parts and he went back and it's about so in the first film it's about them meeting and it's about them being young and then in the second one they're a bit older and then in the third one they're sort of much older and so it's a bit like this but with three discrete films and then he did yeah. boyhood so he clearly likes looking at ethan Hawke getting older uh, yeah. or, or people people <laughs> developing over time now he is doing an adaptation of a Sondheim musical. I don't know if anyone is familiar with the Sondheim's oeuvre in this conversation. I'm sure you are. But he's doing the film of Merrily We Roll Along. Do you know about this no. show? No. Do you know that no, show? No. It's one of Sondheim's, I think it's one of his slightlier. It's not early, early Sondheim, but it's earlier. It's sort of before he gets properly harmonically weird yeah, yeah. <laughs> in his music. And it's about, I'm busking this because I'm not really sure, but it's a about two couples and i think the two guys are maybe either actors or writers or something like that they're artists and it tells the story of their life over a long period of time but in reverse so in the show you see them get younger and younger and link later is filming this over 20 years oh uh starting wow in 2019 so he's he's probably not even done one yet no um <laughs> it's all cast he's doing it in in and so we're gonna see these people get younger isn't that wow fucking that amazing incredible That's and it's sometime as well watch i think one of the this is a massive generalization and i don't think this is necessarily right but i think one of the things people who maybe aren't including myself, massively literate in musical theatre, one of the things you think about Sondheim is that he's maybe not one of the most accessible uh, yeah. or warm composers he, because his music is so weird. school musicals yeah. his entire career. Yeah. Because, because his music is so weird, it's sometimes difficult to feel that human connection with his characters. I'm not saying that's across the board, but sometimes that's the sense you get as an outsider. And I think the one thing about Linklater that he does throughout all of his films is that all of his films are so human yeah. and are, are more than anything about what it's like to be a person. And so I think that combination mm. is just genius. Sondheim and Linklater, I would yeah. never have put it together in a million years. And he's written the screenplay based on the book as well, the, the oh, okay. libretto. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Linklater's right. written the screenplay, which I imagine means merely we roll along. He's not sung through. I really don't know my <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> As ever, if anyone knows more about this, answers on a postcard, please. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I just thought that's, that was a really exciting. No, that's exciting. I'm yeah. uh, looking forward to watching Bring that in 20, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years time. I think oh. I was going to say Ethan Hawke's character in this film, I think is is done the is done the most justice for me. Because you, know, you talk, yeah. I, I mentioned it's a film about growing up, but that's. Well, he also almost grows up more than the Yeah, it's, you see the parents grow up. The as much as the children mature don't they yeah they do grow i think um, as well because it's, it's, it's at the end when ethan so when he, ethan hawk basically he goes from being this cool young guy yeah, yeah. to this to a to a dad and there's this great conversation when he's talking with mason 
And he's saying, oh, with me and your mum, I've probably become the person she needed me to be. But she, yeah. you know, if she, if we'd maybe waited it out, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a weird insight into obviously that specific relationship between those two characters. For me, that's one of the, one of the strongest parts of the film is, is seeing, because obviously they're quite young parents and they're, and both of the actors as well, I think, were young well, parents. Yeah. So talking about Ethan Hawke, I've got another fun fact for you that you mm. probably know you might not. So uh, Ethan Hawke was at one point married to uh, Uma Thurman and yeah. uh, together they have a child, Maya Hawke, who is yeah, yeah. a fantastic yeah, yeah. actor. Yeah. She's in um, Stranger Things is yeah, yeah. the most famous yeah. thing. She's, in, she's great. And anyway, as this film was happening, I'm pretty sure during, I might have my dates wrong, but Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman divorced, so which must have been a very strange experience for Ethan Hawke making this film. But, so do you know the story about the Black Album, the Beatles album he gives yeah. Mason Jr.? Do you know the story about this? I don't think so, no. No. This is amazing, right? So there's a scene in the film where he gives Mason uh, Jr. one of the best presence i can imagine it's, which I, is it a, sounds incredible yeah a hand you can find the the playlist online oh amazing. Um, you can find the official list of songs this kind of compilation of solo beatles tracks that ex beatles had done and he says i've put the beatles back together for you now about a year before they filmed that sequence that was a real presence that ethan hawke compiled and gave to his daughter maya hawke oh wow as a way for her to get through um, and you can read the kind of note he wrote for her as well. It's a bit edited to, to Mason, but the liner notes are, are him saying, I'm giving this to you to help you get through our, your parents' divorce. And so he obviously told Linklater about this and they decided to incorporate it into the film. So that's an example of what you were saying about bits of their real life coming into the the film and i just thought that was absolutely beautiful that's, that's really yeah. interesting that yeah. is gorgeous yeah. in the film yeah. but it makes it even more special now you know that yeah well and, i think yeah. is is that everything on boyhood i think i could talk about this film forever but not yeah. have any more points like, I, worth mentioning it's a weird one isn't it it's one of those films where again there's so much to say but also there's it's there's enough that it it's, it's all right leaving everything unsaid because the yeah. film says it all well, also, um, you, you will get, I think it's a film about feelings and uh, we, we can talk as much about what we got out of it, but we all got, we all, we all did get different things out of it. And I think which that's is great, isn't it? Yeah. That's fantastic. It's really great. It shows the universal nature of the film and, and how mm. it, it can tap into to sort of any individual, no matter what your circumstances. So yeah, yeah, it's very good. Well, cause we well, all, we all had a childhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all grew up. We did all have yeah. a childhood. Yeah. Should we, shall we then? Get yeah. on to deciding our our yeah. pick. I mean, it's boyhood, isn't it? Uh, right. Okay. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> so, so we're talking about all of them. We're talking about all the films that all we eight. discussed. Yeah, so that yeah. okay. Let's break that down. So that is the nominations were uh, American Sniper, Selma, mm -hmm. uh, The Imitation Game, The Theory of Everything, Whiplash, The Grand Budapest Hotel, not the best exotic American <laughs> hotel. Boyhood and Birdman or the unbelievable ponciness of its title, close brackets. Well, yeah, what do you think, guys? It's Boyhood. Uh, the answer's Boyhood. What should have won? I don't know. Uh, it's, boyhood. I think Boyhood, it's, it's a difference. So last time, I, I, I don't know if you um, remember this character, so last time I, I talked about the difference between what the film I would, I think, did, like, should win because it's the best film or the film that I personally liked the most. And I think Boyhood is definitely the film that I liked the most. 
and I think it definitely had the most effort put into in terms of over the years. But I th- but I also I quite like to float some of the other ones as well, which I think all right stood out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I would say for me, it's between Boyhood and Whiplash. Um, again, I. I should sort of state that, you know, Whiplash for me was quite a significant film in that it really did kind of, I'll be very honest, I really don't like musicals. It's not, it, they're not things that I'm overly keen on, but I'd never really seen music treated in a film, but not in a in a musical sense, if that makes, if if that does yeah. make any sense. It probably doesn't. That makes um, sense, I but, think. But I, but I really enjoyed the film and I found it, you know, it, it made me really, really like sort of jazz music and and it kind of enthused me about kind of filmmaking and, and Damien Chazelle as well. And so, but then again, Boyhood for me, and again, I might be a little bit biased, but I think it, it's such a, a wonderful example of, of a compelling story told in an unconventional sense, because I really, one thing I really, really like is um, a, a filmmakers who don't follow convention because a lot of the time, especially when I was making stuff at university and indeed whilst I still am, cause I'm doing an MA, um, you know, people say, oh, well that doesn't fit my criteria. So therefore no one else would like it. And you sort of have to think to yourself, well, hold on, you're one person in one circumstance who hasn't even made a film in their life. So telling me that I can't do something cause you don't like it. Yeah. That's a bit short sighted. And I think could be Fletcher-esque. Uh, very say. Fletcher-esque, very Fletcher-esque. And I think link later he he thought you know what yes i am gonna do 12 shoot over 12 years and if hollywood doesn't like it well they can go fuck themselves yeah. and i really admire that so for me after you know on reflection it has to be boyhood yeah jonah jonah what I, do you think um i think i agree with cam i think that i think the the final three contenders for me were um boyhood whiplash and i think i think selma is up there because yeah, it- I think wants to be able to say Selma, but any other year maybe. Yeah, I think it's in. I think it's an important film and a and a very well made film. But the reason why, so that's that's why I'm throwing it in here. But I do think, in terms of what Cam was saying, in terms of pushing it, again, it is a. I feel like as a biopic, it doesn't do anything that. It doesn't um, do anything new in terms of structure or production. No, it breaks the mold. I think well. Arguably, I think it it lets the filmmaking take a little bit of a side seat to the story, which is important. But I think if we're looking at the, you know film, I think yeah. it has. I think Whip, Whiplash is is just such a well constructed film. I think it just I what I was enjoying because it is really uncomfortable. But what I was enjoying watching it is how competent it felt. Mm, but mm, but like I said. But like, but like, but like my um my decision with the last lot with Wings, Boyhood for me combines yeah the emotional side which so I you know which I got but also it was a really competently and really interestingly made film and it was ambitious filmmaking which is for me basically the criteria of best film is what was the most ambitious idea so yeah I could yeah I, I agree I I I just yeah so I think Boyhood all the way I can't believe it's come to me to be the person to say this but I think we should probably say well Birdman is an adventurous film. Yeah. Um it is pushing boundaries. It's it's not kind of standard 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 Oscar bait. I don't know. But yeah, boyhood. It's obviously boyhood for me. 
Um, shall I open the envelope? Who wants to open the envelope? I can open the envelope if you like. Do you want to open you, the envelope? You go ahead. Make sure it's out? the right film. Yeah. Make, <laughs> okay, that's a whole other year. <laughs> <laughs> make oh, sure it's the right podcast. <laughs> and the winner is Driving Miss Daisy. What? Uh, okay. <clears throat> so the nominations were... I'm not going to do them again. <laughs> no, we've, we've said them. <laughs> okay. The Oscar went to... Just going to get this envelope open. Mm. Oh, it's sticking, this one. Mm. <laughs> Birdman. Birdman. I'm expected virtue of ignorance. I'm not. And that I'm was not. the last episode of Not Exactly Sister Jane. Yeah. Uh, the hosts were Alex Wedlock and Jonah Kensit. And, I'm so uh, cross. I'm so cross. I mean, they fucking love actors, don't they? I, I the can, Academy. I'm not, it's not the one I would have chosen, but I'm not. I, it's it's weird because I did I did try I I did know this and I've tried to pretend that I didn't um, because it I think it, I think it, knowing this made me more angry about the film. Yeah, I think it surprised <laughs> me that as a choice because I do I, I do think it's a good film and I think and I'm not. And it's quite a bold choice to be. No, honest. I'm I mean, I'm quite I'm glad that it got recognition because it you know it could because it could have been it's not quite mainstream enough to maybe to maybe get the attention it deserved, but. Yeah, it, it did surprise me out of that one. I mean, I think I'm I'm happier with with Birdman than I would have been with one of the with like American Sniper or well, with, with Theory of Everything or and I did I love the Imitation Game, but I I think I would have been a bit like, of course it wouldn't, yeah, if it had. So I don't know. It's an interesting one this year. What do yeah. you think, Cam? Cam, I genuinely forgot that Birdman did. And I purposely sort of stayed away. I purposely mm. stayed away from the winner because I didn't want to remind myself for the sake of this podcast. But it's sort of flooding back now. I'm not surprised because technically speaking, narratively speaking, Birdman was a very accomplished film, and you know, from a for a very, from a very respectable director slash writer. And um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. However, given that I now have more of an investment in Boyhood, I am upset that Boyhood didn't win. Yeah, and I think Boyhood should have won, uh, yeah. but then again, that's just my humble opinion. And yeah, uh, I think well, I can understand what I can. It's not the it's not the correct choice, but I think I can understand why Boyhood didn't from. win. I yeah. think. Do you know why? Why? Well, I just it it feels. I think it's quite hard to put your. I mean, we've we've given it a good damn go, but I think it's quite hard to put your finger on why it's why so it, great. Why it's great? I think. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's quite humble, humble film, and it do, yeah. yeah. It doesn't leap well, out as yeah, as I mean, a as a winner. But yeah, I'm. Do I even need to say what I think about this? I'm fucking furious. Um, yeah. But but I do I do think it's. I mean, the majority of the people who vote for these awards are actors. Yeah. And I mean, yes. you can imagine, can't you? If you're a Hollywood actor, this must. Just hit all the right mm. chords, right? Yeah, so, like, a film so about you and your situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just think, ugh, I mean, Boyhood is, like I said, more than a film to me. I yeah. think. What I'm, I'm interested to talk about slightly the other categories a little bit. Um, best director, which Ava DuVernay was not nominated for, which I think we said Criminally. was ridiculous. But yeah, so Inuritu won hmm. for Birdman, which tends to be the way. They yeah, but I, th- I think I think you think Link later. Although no, actually, probably Link later. Oh, I I, I would. I that's what yeah. my compromise would be. I think actually, I could 
best director yeah, over too. best picture, possibly. Yeah. I think. I think Lebeski is absolutely the right choice for cinematography. And yes, now, absolutely. so I want to talk about editing because mm. I was thinking, well, okay, so they obviously either I didn't even look at the nominations. They obviously either gave it to Birdman or Boyhood, right? Clearly, um, which one? Because so the thing is, it's a difficult choice because Birdman. It looks like one shot, but it's, as Cameron said earlier, it's clearly lots not. So it's very yeah. cleverly edited. But at the same time, Boyhood is like 12 years of footage yeah. distilled. So what do you think out of those two films, what, what should have hmm. won best editing? Because obviously it's going to be one of those two, right? I don't, Actually, I'm, I would give this one to Birdman, I think. Yeah. I, because I think because we would agree with the transitions. Yeah. 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 So do you not want to know what one? What? Go on. Anyway, Whiplash one. Okay, um, actually, you know what? Um, Pace, which I don't yeah. disagree with. It's well edited. No, yeah, it's the editing well is edited. used well. I yeah, see, I'm going to see who cut it now because that. Yeah, that is. Um, I can tell that's you. Quite give me just a moment. Um, Tom Cross. Tom Cross. Tom Cross. I'm not going to pretend I, I know. I don't no, know. He Tom did Cross La La Land, <laughs> and he also did oh, yeah, Great Showman. Oh, okay. oh, right. Okay. Yeah. This and is first off. man. Oh, and, and fun fact, he, with Elliot Graham, he has co-edited No Time to Die. Oh. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh. Well. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I think we've had a good time in 2014. I yeah. totally understand why these films, these collection of films, especially the four we've spoken to you to, about today, would yeah. make you want to be a filmmaker, Cam. Completely. Yes. I can completely see that. All of yeah. them. All four yeah. of these ones, especially, kind of lend you another view about what you can do as a filmmaker. And they're very much filmmakers' projects, aren't mm. they? They're, I, they're, I, yeah, I believe, I believe that. And I think that, yeah, just technically speaking, and and well, yeah, just just as films, they they are to be admired, and they all have qualities. And I think we can, you know, we can dissect them even more and talk about their flaws. But I think overall, it was a, it was a decent year, you know, interesting yeah. year because we, as we said in, in our previous part we you know there were biopics as well quite a lot of them um but in terms of the other more subjective works i think yeah it's a very good year also before we finish sorry Mm. boyhood was nominated for six uh awards but it's only won one and we haven't mentioned it i meant to mention it and we haven't really mentioned the person who won it and i would like to because they are brilliant and it's a well-deserving win i think do you guys know was it Patricia Arquette? It was for Best Supporting Actress. And oh, she's yeah. Unbelievable in this film. Yes. I think it's a shame Ethan Hawke didn't get it for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, but I'm very happy that Patricia oh, Arquette, yeah. who we didn't really touch on. Her performance, I think, aside from uh, the performance um, from the children, was, you know, if not the most compelling one of the film. Yeah. yeah. She's, uh, uh, she's my favourite Arquette. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, right. think, um, I think we're going to enjoy the rest of the ceremony. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a great time. Um, we're going to try and laugh at Neil Patrick Harris's jokes. Yeah. He's not as good at the Oscars as he was at the Tonys, isn't he? It's strange. Yeah. No. Um, what are you guys going to do when you get go. back? Going to listen to Happy? Uh, uh, <laughs> going to hunt for a Malaysian airline that's gone missing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to oh. mourn um, Robin Williams and yeah. uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's very sad yeah. things that happened. In the historical context bit of this podcast kind of dropped off, didn't it? But there we go. Cameron, <laughs> thank you so much for being our yes. first guest. As you said, you can find yourselves on all the social medias when you're back. Um, it's been absolutely lovely. Yeah. Um, uh, just one last thing from you. Thank you yeah. for coming. Hope well, you had a good thank time. Thank you very much both for having me. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and uh, again, I appreciate 
having something to do in, in what has <laughs> been a very weird year, I think, for all of us. And uh, yeah, yeah just to so. say, hope you're all keeping safe out there and keeping yeah. well. And hopefully 2021 is a better year for all of us. But no, thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, really appreciate no worries. it. Lovely. Jonah, one mm. last thing. Anything you want to say to our many, many listeners? Before we consciously uncouple from each other. <laughs> I did all this research in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> um if you've got anything to say to us, just write in, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. I think what I'm going to do is go away and film a little bit of footage, about 20 minutes of footage for the next 12 years of my life and try and see what comes of it. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. I just want to leave us all on, on, you know, one thought is what do we think of when we think of love? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, what do we talk about when we talk about oh love? I've got the line wrong as well <laughs> well there we what? go hang on what film's that from I can't even remember Birdman it's the play in Birdman oh for fuck's sake it. of course it fucking <laughs> is oh darn oh. it smells like balls <laughs> right uh, right bye <laughs> bye bye <laughs> thank you bye bye <laughs>